Welcome to Galaxy Moonbeam Nightsight. We are the retro talk program for nostalgia and baby boomer stuff right here on the Galaxy Nostalgia Network. I'm Smitty. I'm Mike. And I'm George. And we welcome you to another hour program. This is one of our hour programs that we're going to be doing this time. And we uh, are certainly happy to have you with us, and we have a lot of good topics that are going to be covered on this program, and we're just uh, glad to be here with you. We've got so much to talk about. Let's get started right away. You know, there's a children's show that we remember from uh, the 50s and 60s that uh, our good friend George Halakos is going to talk to us about. And to get us started, see if you remember what this theme song. We're going to play you the theme song. It'll be evident as soon as we start playing it. But how many of you remember this? That's right, Gumby, the uh, little green character, which we all remember from our childhoods, and uh, his pony pal, Pokey, too. And, George, you're going to lead us into a look back into uh, Gumby and Pokey and all the fun characters and Art Cloakey and lots of history there, George. Tell us about it. What a wonderful memory this is. And I guess, Gilbert, we have to owe this idea to uh, an idea that was presented to one of our listeners. I believe her name is Peggy. Peggy Borsma from Los Angeles, who's one of our good friends and uh, a good listener. And she's the one that came up with this idea. She said, why don't you do a piece on Gumby? And so we're very pleased to be obliging her and everybody else. Well, my thanks to her, because this is just a, a wonderful topic to reflect and remember. For those of you that are not fully cognizant about this character, Gumby is a green clay humanoid character that, as Gilbert noted, was created and modeled by Art Cloakey. Gumby ran for 233 episodes, and it was inspired by a suggestion from Cloakey's wife, Ruth, that he based his character on the gingerbread man. And Gumby was green because that was Cloakey's favorite color. And his legs and feet were made wide for very pragmatic reasons. They ensured that the clay character would stand up during the stop-motion filming. <laughs> and, uh, of course, the famous slanted shape of Gumby's head was based on the hairstyle of Cloakey's father, Charles Farrington, in a very old family photograph. But Gumpy was accompanied by his principal sidekick, Pokey, who was a talking orange pony. And they had their nemeses, or bullies, that were known as the blockheads. They were a pair of humanoid, red-colored figures with block-shaped heads. And they would wreak havoc and mischief uh, for the lives of Gumby and Pokey. And it turns out that the blockheads were inspired by a very famous cartoon strip, the Katzenjammer Kids, 
who are always getting into scrapes and causing a lot of discomfort and consternation for others. But there were a number of other iconic characters that uh, were pals of Gumby, and that included his dog, Nopey, whose entire vocabulary was the word nope. Nope. And then, of course, there was Prickle. And he was a yellow dinosaur, and he was noteworthy because he fashioned himself to be like Sherlock Holmes, uh, wearing the deerstalker hat and, of course, uh, having the signature pipe. And then, of course, there was Goo, who was a flying blue mermaid, who was able to spit blue goo balls and was able to change shape at will. And then, of course, Gumby's parents, Gumbo and Gumba. And then I believe much later on when it was syndicated, they added a sister, Minga, and then a mastodon by the name of Denali. So it's a wide cast of characters that actually began in the mid-50s. It was actually part of the Howdy Doody show. And apparently the NBC executive, Thomas Warren Sarnoff, he saw and loved the first pilot that Mr. Clokey put together, and he had him make another one. And it turned out to be, and Gilbert... I just learned this. This is one of our favorite episodes. Mm-hmm. It was Gumby on the Moon. Yes, Gumby on the Moon. <laughs> and it was such a popular hit on the Howdy Doody show that they gave Gumby his own show on NBC. And uh, the third pilot, uh, Robot Rumpus, was the third pilot which was used for the show's second season in 1957, in which it was a spinoff of Howdy Doody. And I believe it was hosted first by Robert Nicholson and then later by Pinky Lee. Yes, exactly. George, in uh, in preparation for this piece, you know, I think we all did some some research and this this certainly uh takes me back to some of my very earliest childhood memories of watching uh, the Gumby on television. And uh it was unique because it was a stop motion animation. It was clay claymation basically, not a cartoon, not an animated per se a cartoon, but it was unique in that you saw it was more of a three-dimensional type of a thing. And you did mention Gumby on the Moon, which if any of our listeners, if you remember Gumby or you'd like to see some of the episodes, there's a ton of episodes on YouTube. And I did see the Gumby on the Moon one, and it, I saw actually uh, saw it a couple times, and it, just the eerie sound effects. I mean, it's really very neatly done. They're looking up at the moon. The moon has this almost psychotic smile on its face, and there's asteroids. And it's, for a child... I seem to remember not fully understanding everything that I was seeing, but it was stimulating. It would get your mind thinking, uh, you know, about stuff. But there are certainly a lot of episodes, and we'll talk more about them, you know, as we go on here. You know, and some of the dramatic ends or angles, rather, of the Gumby was something so very simple that the creators, they would take the little eyeball inside the eye socket of Gumby, and as the frames would pass, they would move the eyeball a little. So Gumby would almost react like saying, oh, mm-hmm. or geez. Or, wow, just by the look, remember the eyeballs? Yes. Would change, the middle of the eyeball, the little clay dot right. would change just a bit to show sighing or excitement or th- thought process. And I thought that was that was interesting because children's TV was, was quite unique in the 50s because we were leaving radio. We were going to more of a visual thing. We had Superman, which was a real person, mm-hmm. but we had an awful lot of programs that were non-people, speaking of howdy duty, speaking of, well, you can't really talk talk too much about the TV clowns because they were human beings inside of the clown makeup. You know, Clarabelle, and we had, uh, but we had people, but we also had animated figures too. Gumby was a pioneer. 
Well, NBC ran it because it was in, in syndication because they didn't have anything else to match it as far as the viewership. So a lot of the networks, a lot of the syndicators picked up on Gumby 30 years after the series ended. And you can still probably, it's like I Love Lucy, you can probably find some Gumby episodes. Well, you can find them anywhere now on the Internet. You can go to YouTube and watch Gumby shows. I thought the interesting part with the Gumby, today we call it product placement, but Gumby had the coolest toys in his room. Primarily, he had the nice, newest Tonka trucks, and he would ride around in them. And he would ride in a Tonka Jeep, and it had Pokey in the horse trailer behind the Tonka Jeep. And I thought that was so cool, because I'd watch that, and those are the kind of Tonka toys I really need to have, the kind Gumby rolls around in. <laughs> I like the one with the model trains. Remember, we did an episode oh, last year on model trains. trains. Mm-hmm. Model trains, but the toys, and that made it interesting. I was not much of a claymation kind of guy. Uh, but you know there was a reason, and you go back and you go back into the creator. You know he he. It was interesting because they asked him why was Gumby green. Here's a guy with the foresight. He wanted to stay racially neutral. Gumby wasn't white, and he wasn't brown, and he wasn't yellow, and he wasn't black. He was green. Mm-hmm. That's which I think created psychologically an acceptance. I think it crossed all all of the uh, racial and creeds and. He was, he was non-religious. You, I don't think you had on these Gumbies. You had right or wrong lessons, but you didn't have spiritual messages there. It was it, it, What you see is what you got on the Gumby shows. And even to this day, people talk. I don't know. I don't hear the young people talk about, but you, you refer to Gumby almost as a cliche in some cases. So, yeah, they <laughs> bent my fat lady back and bent my fender like Gumby. And it's still used. And Gumby became a household word, yeah. especially among us baby boomers who grew up with Gumby and, and Pokey and the dinosaur that liked to dress up like a detective, remember? <laughs> oh, <laughs> with, I just with a magnifying it. glass. <laughs> but even, I have a friend who has a floral shop. I heard a term once, and I couldn't figure out, and this was long before we produced this show about Gumby, but she was saying, I got a girl out today, she got a Gumby bite. And uh, she got a Gumby bite, and she can't move her thumb, and I was a Gumby bite. Now, how would that apply to the floral business? A Gumby bite in the floral industry, because Gumby was structured out of hard wire, like coat oh. hanger wire. And when Gumby's wire exoskeletal system would come through the plastic, it was a sharp, it was just like cutting, it was cutting a, a coat hanger and scratching your thumb right. on the on the broken, it was raw, it wasn't even filed down. Open a Gumby if you don't believe me, Smitty, and you'll oh, know what sure. I mean. I think I actually do remember that, Mike, yeah. But they would come out and it would create a nasty wound, and the floral people, of course, use wires for the arrangements, right. and it became known in the industry as a Gumby bite when you get scratched by one of these floral mounting wires, the heavier ones. I thought that was interesting. The other little bit of tidbit info, some trivia, Gumby was voiced by a fellow by the name of Dallas McKinnon during the early times in the in the 50s. Dallas McKinnon played Cincinnatus in Daniel Boone. Daniel Boone the series? Yes, that's right. And the same voice, Dallas McKinnon, that voiced Gumby, also voiced Pokey at different times. Now, that's some range when you think of Dallas McKinnon as Cincinnatus and Daniel Boone, which came in the, in the mid-60s. He was an old grizzled guy with a long beard, and he ran the general store. And you look at the background... He was the voice of Gumby. That's one of the things our listeners probably did not know, but now they know. Now, now they know it. George, uh, let's talk a little bit about Art Clokey, the creator. Uh, it seems to me, and I saw a, um, 
a, a documentary also the, online that's available on YouTube uh, with reference to him. He started off really as kind of a, just a, a conventional person that, uh, you know, was interested in animation, and he did his first film, uh, Gumbasia, which was the sort of the precursor to Gumby. But in the 60s, he kind of did a 180 turn, didn't he? He kind of went a whole different direction. He did. He absolutely went a completely different direction. And one of the interesting things about it that came through this research was that he later became the creator of another iconic program for children titled Davy and Goliath. Yes. And so his career ran a, a full spectrum, but he's definitely one of the pioneers because Gumbasia was developed in 1953, and it was uh, occurred shortly after he had completed film school at the University of Southern California, and it was uh, co-created with his wife, Ruth. But it was then... Uh, I guess come up in our research that as time passed on, uh, he basically went completely away from the direction of Gumby and went off into a number of different uh, venues in which perhaps it involved a, a search for oneself and trying to find out where your niche is. Yes, the uh, self-exploration, I guess we would call yes, it. Yes, the arrival of the 60s and uh, the hippie movement and the drug subculture and uh, Art Cloakey was involved in that. He subsequently did divorce his wife, Ruth, and uh, uh, I know that toward the uh, end of the Gumby run, he was even really involved with it very much. He was letting the animators and his ex-wife, Ruth, run the whole thing. Um, kind of interesting how he went uh, totally uh, opposite, you know, what uh, what he had been doing up to that point. Well, he was definitely a, what we call, or maybe the cliché is worn out, but I still use it once in a while when referring to you and I, Smitty. Uh, he was a Renaissance man. Yeah. You know, Art Cloakey was a, a World War II veteran, and he wasn't drafted. He enlisted, and he was in the war. In 1943, he left Pomona College to enlist. He had a He had a college deferment. But he enlisted in World War II, so he was a veteran, and, and God bless him and all our other yes. veterans. But came back, and I, I know what he was going through. He's one of these right-brain guys that ha finds it difficult to grasp reality on reality's terms as dictated by unrealistic people. So he made his own reality. And you mentioned Davy and Goliath, and this is where the turn, this is where the pivot occurred. Because I did some research prior to us having our production meeting. Actually, David Goliath was funded by the Lutheran Church. And that was in a period of time when he was uh, in self-retrospection about his spiritual beliefs, his mm -hmm. groundings. He came from a small home, uh, not an abusive home, but he was struggling with his spiritual compass, so to speak, and his involvement, not through the Lutheran Church, but because they were funding this. It gave him time for thought and reflection. And we might also add that he did a lot of work for the big screen. He did a lot of claimation on the titles uh, for a lot of the movies. One I remember, even before we started doing the show, was Dr. Goldfoot and the Bikini Machine. Cloakie put the titling, the claimation titling up, as well as the movie How to Stuff a Wild Bikini. So he got up in the big screen, but uh, in 95, Cloakie and Dallas McKinnon got back together and did Gumby the movie. It was a stinker. It was a bomb. It didn't make it, and by then he had evolved in his thought process. We won't say hippie might be too broad of a term, but he became rather bohemian. He started challenging everything that he was raised to believe in business as a person, as a youth, and this was in the turbulent 60s when a lot of stuff was going on, so... Uh, 
he went full circle and he actually died in his sleep. He had a very long life and a very productive life, but passed away in his sleep. Did you have a Gumby doll, George? I've been dying for the last 16 <laughs> minutes, 42 seconds. Before we go to our retro-mercial, I keep asking, George, all right, I'll rephrase that, George. Do you still have your Gumby doll? I no longer have my Gumby doll. Okay. I, had, I, had a, I, had a, I had a regular size and a miniature size. But the thing that I remember most about Gumby that inspired me, and it's in the title song, was the fact that Gumby could walk into any book. And what's ironic is that at the time this stinker motion picture was introduced in the mid-90s, at the same time, the Library of Congress had Gumby as their principal spokes character. Why? Because Gumby could walk into any book, and it was used as a way of promoting the importance of reading for both uh personal as well as educational development. And I think what's interesting, at that same time, TV Guide honored Gumby as being the best cartoon series from the 1950s. So we were able to come full circle. We've come full circle. Gumby as almost a children's adventure series. It was spoofed. If you remember the Saturday Night Live episodes where they had a character called Mr. Bill. That was a, a knockoff of Gumby. It was a claymation thing. And Mr. Bill, unfortunately, would end up in a bathtub drain ready to go down the tube. <laughs> and they were spoofing Gumby. But right. in a way, they were paying homage. Do you agree, George? I do. Very much so. I think what happens is that something like Gumby starts out, as, as we noted at the beginning of this production, as something that was uh, a part of a, another program. In this case, it was Howdy Doody. And then it takes on a life of its own. And then it becomes embedded into pop culture. And as you noted, you know, the issue of Gumby and some of the things becomes part of the lexicon. You know, what's interesting, George, is that in looking at some of those Gumby episodes that I told everybody that I saw online, it's very clear how Gumby is a very polite character. Yes. Yes, thank you. There's one where he's... Uh, sparring with a little boy that doesn't want them to be around where he is. So he says, well, we'll just leave and we'll leave you alone. You know, just very, very polite. And I think that little kids probably learned, you know, from that. to be, could to be, be a good role model. A good role model, exactly. Before we leave this topic, let's just talk really quickly about some of the episodes. Now, we mentioned Gumby on the Moon. Do you have any other favorite episodes, George, that you remember that particularly stick out in your mind? I do. I've got a couple of, of others. Well, of course, the moon is number one because I've, I've <laughs> yes. always loved the space program and everything associated with that. But I would say that the other one that uh, sparked my imagination was the one where they decided to tackle the blockheads. And oh, yes. the blockheads were could be bullies at times. And Gumby was able to do it in a non-threatening way. It was rather innovative with the use of the toys. As I recall, he actually used the toy fire engine to squirt water on them, and he had the trains uh, cooperating with him to sort of uh, prevent them from uh, uh, incurring in their territory. Those were always lots of fun. Do you you remember the sounds the blockheads made? Do you remember? Can you repeat that? I cannot repeat that They mumbled. Oh, that's right. Oh, that's right, yes. Yeah. Oh, And you know, it's interesting that even while he was dealing with the blockheads, he was doing it in a very positive, positive. way. In other yes. words, he wasn't like, okay, I'm going to get these guys. All of no. us have dealt with bullies. Right. And, yeah. and it, that's a perennially relevant topic for any generation. And I think the way that Gumby dealt with it, uh, again, provided a good role model for kids because he stood up for himself but yet he didn't allow himself to come down to their level. Exactly. He did have the the nemesis of the uh, 
of the Blockheads, but he also, you know, was involved in a lot of other funny episodes. Real quickly, one of the uh, episodes that I remember was where they walked into the oven and there was a pie that was being baked and they went into this land where all these all these pastries are being baked and then finally this pie turns into a big monster and they get baked into a pie. I forgot yeah, about that. that. One, that that's that's online, yeah. And then uh, uh, the other one is where they are helping the uh, the Indian chief that they need rain and it's they talk about the uh, Kachina dolls and yes. there's those real kind of Art Deco looking clouds that kind of float up in the air. And yes. they, I mean, just really... I remember not fully understanding what was going on, but it was very stimulating. It to see sparked all that. your imagination. It sparked your imagination, exactly. And of course, the moon one—you uh, know, uh, uh, just his dad going up on the uh, fire engine ladder to retrieve him from the moon. I thought that was so amazing. There was one that was not on YouTube that I was looking for, and that was—it's an episode called "Grub Grabber Gumby," where he falls asleep and he imagines uh, Pokey as being this kind of this mad scientist who just stuffs him full of food. Yes. And that one was not online, and I was looking for that one because I remember that one. He's like, he's got like a, a carload of hamburgers and a tanker truck of soda, and he just stuffs him full. And the premise of it was that Gumby had been eating, had been had eaten a whole pie, he'd eaten Pokey's sandwich, and he was kind of being like a, a glutton. And that was that was very interesting. But so many memories there, George. I think but they're all available on DVD now. They, yes, I believe they all are, yeah. So that's something for all of our collector friends to look into. But we sure thank uh, Peggy Borsma for the idea. And we, George, we thank you for providing us with so much neat information, a lot of good memories there. And uh, we'll have to visit uh, Gumby on online, Gumby and Pokey. Well, it's time now for our retro commercial, and uh, then we'll be back with more of Galaxy Moonbeam Nightsight. Mike uh, Bragg has some uh, word on some passings of some noted individuals. We'll tell you about that as soon as we get back from this retro commercial. You're listening to Galaxy Moonbeam Nightsight on the Galaxy Nostalgia Network. Everybody's doing it, jumping for joy. Mmm, boy, almond joy. Mmm, boy, almond joy from Peter Paul finest tasting candy of all. Take golden toasted almonds, crisp whole almonds, dipped in smooth milk chocolate to seal in that fresh roasted flavor. Then bring on the coconut, so juicy, so tender, and top it all with real milk chocolate. Mmm, boy, almond joy, juicy coconut, real milk chocolate, and golden toasted almonds on every double bar. Peter Paul Almond Joy, indescribably delicious. For a new indescribably delicious candy, try Almond Cluster, almonds, chocolate, and malted milk. That's Peter Paul Almond Cluster. Okay, baby boomers out there, this is going to ring a bell. This song, well, we're, remember, we're remembering Jack Bruce, but let me tell you why we bumped into this song after the retromercial, because this is the song played by every single kid in the baby boomer era from 1966 on through till 85, who went into a music store and played one of the basses that was on display for sale. That was always going to be the song that you played. Even Jack Bruce, who recently left us, 
Bless you, Jack, for all the music, all the bass riffs. Jack Bruce was asked what his favorite song was. His group, of course, if you're listening out there and, and you know or else you will know, Jack Bruce was the bassist for the group Cream, along with Ginger Baker on the drums and our favorite Eric Clapton. The three of those guys wiped it out in rock music in the mid and to late 60s with songs and they just go over and over. And you're going to have a series of record albums. If you're my age, being in the early 60s, late 50s, for that matter, there was a time capsule of record albums that you had. One of them was Cream's Disraeli Gears. The other was Anything by the Doors, uh, Traffic, uh, ooh, uh, Jimi Hendrix Experience. I can go on and on. But you had to have the Cream album unless you were uncool. And then if you were that uncool, you probably weren't listening to pop music anyway. But Jack Bruce, a legendary bass player, a wonderful singer, uh, his rendition of the song Spoonful has always been my favorite Cream song, uh, seconded only by Jack Bruce's cover of I Feel Free. It wasn't his cover. He invented it, I Feel Free. But Jack Bruce left us. That leaves Ginger Baker. That leaves uh, Eric Clapton. Still two-thirds of cream, and uh, we remember Jack Bruce because if you lived in the baby boomer years, the cream had some kind of impact on you. If not the cream, then probably Ginger Baker, but more or less Eric Clapton. So we remember Jack Bruce. This is part of the British invasion, of course, right, Mike? Well, it was a few years after. They came in around 66, 67. Right. They, there was a second wave of the British invasion. Okay. Jimi Hendrix was rolling, and he was an American artist. But Jimi Hendrix, his two, he was a three-person band. The Jimi Hendrix Experience, the two guys in his band were, were Brits. So the British had a tremendous influence. Rolling Stones, their first covers and their albums were old American rhythm and blues classics. So... The British invasion was over. The American groups were coming along. The hippie generation had begun. Uh, there was turbulence in American society, but we had a common thread known as the new style rock music. And these were some guys good on drums, such as Ginger Baker, who's probably the best of the best, even by his own peers who agree that. Probably the best bass guitarist that ever walked, Jack Bruce and what do I say about Eric Clapton? These people in the early years, formative years, they were children. Rod Stewart was part of the Small Faces, and look where he went on to. And now he's singing bistros and big band tunes. But we're talking 50-plus years ago, or maybe 45 years ago. And I brought up the death of Jack Bruce because uh, these notables are leaving, these musicians. We're going to talk about a couple of other notables who really made an impact on us as American kids in the 60s and, for that matter, the 70s and 80s. So God bless you, Jack Bruce. Also, we lost another musician leaving a, that psychedelic, whatever you want to call the music of Cream, over to Rhythm and Blues and Motown. Uh, we lost Jimmy Ruffin earlier. This is the month of November 2014. Jimmy Ruffin passed away in the middle of the month, and he was uh, very ill. But I remember Jimmy Ruffin as part of the Temptations. He was shadowed by his brother, David Ruffin, uh, who was murdered in a drug deal in the early 90s, which inspired Jimmy to be an anti-drug crusader for the rest of his life. Jimmy Ruffin's song, was What Becomes of the Brokenhearted, was probably one of those signature songs you're going to remember if you listen to that music. And if you listen to Top 40 Radio, you're going to get the songs. You're going to get Rhythm and Blues along with a Beach Boys song, along with a Jimi Hendrix song and a Doors song and a Patti Page song. 
That's just how Top 40 music was back in the glory days, the golden days of Top 40 AM radio. But Jimmy Ruffin would belt out that song, and it had a lot of meaning to it. Uh, He was background vocals on My Girl, uh, Eddie Kendricks, Otis Williams, The Temptations. Uh, They defined a lot of the pop music of America, even for people like me and George, who didn't really live in a demographic that was centered on soul music. You didn't have to be. No, you did not have to be. That type of music just transcended any type of neighborhood you lived in or socioeconomic or race. The Supreme, same thing. And what I think is so interesting about it is it brought people together. Yes. It brought people together. I know that a lot of times when I found this to be a unifying factor is that uh, when I would go to church, you know, oftentimes we would get together at different families' houses. And, and, of course, being in Los Angeles, everybody is spread out. So church provided that opportunity to get together, and then we would rotate and visit different families' houses. And I remember that the music that you cited was a great unifying factor. We yes. would share that together. And it did seem to transcend uh, all of the traditional barriers that you associate with that period. And as you correctly noted... The music resonates today. The quality is so amazing that you still like it, not only because it evokes that period, but it's just very, very good. Well, I'm coming up on 39 years of marriage with my sweetheart, and every year when we celebrate our anniversary, I always go back to the song My Girl by The Temptations because that was the song that defined falling in love and and getting engaged and we were married in 1976 that that was the song that defined and continues to define and i'm not probably much different than most other um, american baby boomers who lived in that era the 60s 70s 80s uh we basically found adulthood in the 80s we were adults in the 70s but we really didn't jump that bridge into trying to be serious contributors to society until about the 80s. So the whole songbook, uh, and I brought these up because we do we do cover obituaries, and believe me, listeners, we'd love to cover them all, and we do get emails in, well, hey, why don't you talk about so-and-so and so-and-so? You tell us and we'll talk about them, but there's just too many of these notables that are leaving us because of the era we're in, and it's called They Got Old. A lot of the notables, a lot of our celebs and musicians died early, horrible, terrible deaths, or some just didn't wake up because of abusing themselves or health issues. But there are some, and we salute the ones who actually got out to the other end. I believe Jack Bruce was probably, he might might have been 70 when he passed away. I kind of want to think that we can look it up, or you can look it up. But another one who did live a full life and gave us so much on the American cinema and more, Smitty's going to talk about way, way back, is a fellow who defined American cinema for us Mid-level baby boomers, the ones born in the 50s who grew up and and went to the movies in the 60s and 70s and 80s, none other than one of my favorite directors, Mike Nichols. Mike Nichols passed away uh, earlier this month, being in November. uh, He directed uh, The Graduate, Dustin Hoffman, uh, Charlie Wilson's War for a number of years down. I'm just reading these off to give you the range of this man, of what he could do. Uh, he worked with Liz Taylor and Richard Burton in that movie. I think we've talked about it once, George, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. Yes. Do you remember trying to convince the ticket taker at the movie house that you were 18 years old when you were actually 16 years old and you were trying to get in to see that movie Carnal Knowledge? 
with Jack Nicholson, Art Garfunkel, and Candace Bergen. It was rated R because of the uh, suggestive scenes between Candace Bergen and Jack Nicholson. Anyway, won't go into that, but Carnal Knowledge was a blockbuster. It was a hit in 1971, which happened to be the year I graduated from high school. And just the the vibe of Carnal Knowledge was it was the coming of age in American society. These are kids that were friends that went off to college, and Mike Nichols directed this. It was real. It was almost embarrassing to look at that several years later, watch that picture, and say, this is how it was when I went to college with the girl and my best friend and on and on. He just had a knack for that. He did one with one of my favorites of uh, Mike Nichols was a movie called Heartburn, another Jack Nicholson movie with Meryl Streep, and it had to do with... A writer and politics in Washington, D.C. in the 70s. And it brought together, again, the American, what goes on in everyone's lives. Even if you're living in a middle-class L.A. suburb, there's people with the same problems who are the big people. And uh, he did Catch-22, which is, again, probably one of my favorites. But the the range of the Mike Nichols, he's an American original. He came over at the age of two, escaping the Nazis with his family. And went on to be a self-made man, truly a self-made man. So we thank Mike Nichols for his wonderful catalog and library of work, what he's given American pop culture, and what he's done to communicate on the big screen, the social times and the social happenings of being a, of us being a baby boomer and getting through the 60s and 70s. He could tell a story, and it could be painfully real in your own life. So Mike Nichols, um, our best to Diane Sawyer, your wife, and... Uh, I'm going to miss this guy. I'm going to go home. I'm going to go home and watch The Birdcage tonight, one of my favorite comedies, because we talked about Robin Williams. And Mike Nichols actually directed The Birdcage, which is one of probably one of the best comedies I've seen. Yeah, just years. looking, Mike, at the uh, range of awards that he won, Emmy Awards and Tony Awards and Golden Globe Awards. and But I, uh, being the radio uh, historian type that uh, I am, I remember Mike Nichols's work on the radio with Elaine May as a comedy uh, duo, and they did a, they had frequent appearances on NBC's Monitor program, which everybody remembers from the 1960s. They used to do little uh, short skits on Monitor. They would have a, a Nichols and May skit, and uh, they were heard uh, just about every weekend with some kind of a little skit and uh, humor that they uh, that they both did. They uh, were together for um, for quite a while, eventually breaking up. But uh, during that uh, time period, of course, they were heard on the radio quite a bit. Uh, their humor, sort of a sophisticated uh, humor, uh, you know, not slapstick or not uh, really too uh, punchy, but just something that that was ver- that was very subtle that would make you think, and it was just very very subtle. Humor. And it was all improv. Right? It was improv. A lot of it was improv. Yeah, a lot of it was scripted, but but some of it was improv. Yeah, they would do. They would write the script and then go improv they wouldn't even block it out just like one of their famous ones and it is available on youtube you just got to search for it the one uh mike nichols and elaine may did it was called the 65 dollar funeral and what a duo they had perfect timing and their execution and timing was just perfect well they had worked together for years and years but they were the most popular the highest rated show on the network on, on that monitor series they did and uh they won a lot of awards back then when awards were something that you didn't have 1300 entries yeah exactly yeah and uh monitor of course and we'll do a show on monitor in the future we've talked about that before but uh, 
they they certainly were one of the the key components of of, of NBC Monitor and mm. uh, just providing some of the comedic uh, uh, bits on on NBC Monitor. I believe that Mr. Nichols, of course, is also associated with uh, a classic American film that uh, introduced to us Dustin Hoffman, The Graduate. The Graduate yes, yeah. The Graduate, yes. And what I enjoyed so very much about that film, and I associated with Nichols because of his creativity and his edginess, was how he was able to integrate all the themes of that day from that period, and yet it still remains perennially relevant. The, the idea of what do you do after you graduate from college and coming to terms with your place in the scheme of things and your relationships with others. And, of course, I thought what Nichols did that uh, showed great creativity was the way that he integrated so very skillfully the classic sounds of Simon and Garfunkel. Yes, the great The great duo from the 60s. And I think that the fact that he won all the awards that he did in so many different venues demonstrates why he, given his humble beginnings, is a true classic American success story, and we're so grateful. We're grateful for their work as well as the work of, of Jimmy Ruffin and all those who have gone, Jack Bruce. Uh, we are going to go to a retro-mercial here. wanted to remind you who you are listening to and what you are listening to. You are listening to Mike Smitty and George Halalakos, our good friend, right here today on Galaxy Moonbeam Night Sight with the Galaxy Nostalgia Network standing by to go into a retromercial. Don't you dare go away. We've got the good stuff coming right behind this retromercial. Any place, any time is a good time for Coke. Well, that's kind of a neat commercial for Coca-Cola. That dates back to the early 60s, I believe, and uh, kind of a little jingle there to uh, wake you up. Hopefully you're not asleep. Hopefully you're still with us here on Galaxy Moonbeam Nightside on the Galaxy Nostalgia Network. I'm Gilbert Smitty-Smith, along with my good friends Mike Bragg and George Halakos, and we're continuing with our one-hour show as we uh, enter the concluding segment of it. Well, you know, uh, there's... Uh, one of the television programs that uh, we remember from the 60s and 70s that goes back, it wasn't really a regular s- series. It was something that was uh, considered a special, and it was something that uh, was educational, but it was fun. I think a lot of us remember it, uh, watching it with our parents or talking about it at school. And uh, let's, uh, let's give you a little uh, musical cue again so you can uh, get an idea of what we're talking about. And 
That's right. That's that uh, wonderful theme music composed by Elmer Bernstein that introduced the National Geographic specials that we remember from the 60s and 70s. And, George, you're going to refresh our minds about uh, those shows that we remember from that time period. That rousing theme song uh, brings back so many wonderful memories, not only with my parents, but also with friends and schoolmates alike. As we all may recall, National Geographic produced an iconic series of specials during that era, which was a classic series of films that explored nature and man in various cultural and historical contexts. And what it was able to do at the dawn of the jet age was that it was able to transport us literally to places far, far away, but that were a part of our world that we were living in. And what I appreciate about this wonderful series was the tie-ins that it had with the magazine, the National Geographic magazine, which was, I think, a part of every household. And also there was a companion series associated with that for school children titled School Bulletin. And what occurred was that these publications would publicize in advance these upcoming National Geographic specials. Then they would have articles about that in those publications. You could share this at school. Teachers would have special projects. You talk about it with your friends. It was something to be involved in with your parents when parents were very much involved with uh, their children and what they were studying in school. And then also there was a series of books They were also spun off from this as well. But here are some of the topics that we were able to explore and places we were able to go. First of all, we were able to travel to Russia, to Australia, to Africa, the Antarctic, the Arctic, Alaska, and other places near and far. And what I remember as well, and this is something that you guys could uh, pop in on, is that there were a number of important uh, scientists who were very dominant in their fields, and they became media figures that actually were able to create their own franchises. Here's a few of them. How many of you remember Dr. Leakey and the Dawn of Man? He, of course, introduced to the subject of anthropology with his wife while they were there uh, in the deepest part of Africa. How many of you remember Thor Heyerdahl, who we associate with Kantiki, the raw expeditions, the Tigris, and the migration of ancient civilizations. How about Jane Goodall in Africa with her incredible research that she did living among the apes and chimpanzees, again in the darkest reaches of Africa. And of course, I think all of us have special memories of the world of Jacques Cousteau, in which we were able to literally become like Captain Nemo uh, and explore places far and wide, all around under the sea. And my favorite of all of these actually is one that has nothing to do with science. It has to do more with adventure. The Voyage of the Brigantine Yankee, a sailing ship that was traveling around the world, and you were there on the deck. You could actually feel the sea spray uh, in your face. You actually experienced the... uh, Uh, exciting portion where they ended up being beached on the reef uh, in the South Pacific. What an exciting, exciting series. And again, what I really appreciated was being able to share this with my mom and dad or with neighbors. How about you guys? What do you remember from the National Geographic series? And 
Can you explain why the show is still popular today, and as well as the magazines? You know, George, what's interesting about this this show that comes to mind, the National Geographic specials, not only were they entertaining, they were educational, highly educational. You mentioned uh, the undersea world of Jacques Cousteau. I remember watching that with my father, you know, and... Uh, Again, the program would begin. We'd have that rousing theme music that we heard, and it was just, and it was kind of exciting. It was, it was, not only was it something neat that you were exploring these different regions of the earth and under the sea and everything, but it was educational also. It was fun. And I think that a genre like that really is timeless. Again, today we can put on a, a National Geographic film that was shown 50 years ago and we can still learn from it so you know some of the narrators you know that of course we had um, rod serling who narrated a lot of the uh, the jacques Cousteau, uh, episodes but i also remember that the great voice of alexander scurby who also narrated so many of the episodes uh, such people as, as also as burgess meredith was also a narrator you know just kind of a marriage of entertainment of education and again it, i think for a lot of us it was a family event we didn't see it alone we saw it with our family members because it was an entire, again, a different era of television viewing. The whole family would gather together, and this was a, a special that would come on. Originally, they would air on, on CBS uh, originally, and then they moved to ABC later on. But it was just something that the whole family shared and enjoyed. Smitty, I know you've hit on something when you've mentioned the narrators who took us on the voice journey through the visual because these are some of the finer narrators and public speakers and orators in uh, mid-20th century American history of entertainment, not only entertainment, but speaking and radio. Some of the names that I came up with, and you mentioned Alexander Scurvy, yeah. he was very English, very brogue, but we also had Leslie Nielsen. Uh, he narrated nine episodes from 1972 to 1980. Joe Campanella. Yes. Uh, yes. I can exactly. remember those. Yes. Richard Kiley. Mm -hmm. Kiley is the one that Man I remember. of La Mancha. Of course. Orson Welles himself, actually, he narrated five episodes in, from 65 to 66. Uh, E.G. Marshall. Yes, E.G. Marshall. Diane Fossey mm -hmm. as, uh, I think, one of the best speaking voices. And I think the voices lended value and credibility and legitimacy to actual the production, the way that the narrations were read. Some dramatic, they weren't over, they weren't poppy by any chance, but they were dramatic. Uh, Richard Behart, uh, Jimmy Stewart narrated one. I don't know if you remember, and I can't remember the episode. I know it was in the 70s, probably 76, 77. Uh, James Whitmore, Hal Holbrook. Uh, but these were masterpieces because of the assembly, the production process, the visual you didn't have your TV screen set on the same image for too long. They were experts at timing. And the timing with the narration, as you and I know, Smitty, putting over 150 shows together, 90% of it is production quality, and 90% of that 90% is timing and execution, or else it blows. And your phone rings, or people say bad things about your babies out there that you've worked so hard to work on, but putting together a fine mixture, weaving together a tapestry of the visuals and also the essence of going to the faraway places. Here's middle America sitting there in front of the TV set with their kids, and they're in Bali or they're in Suriname, places we would love to go, we never will. And that's what made National Geographic such a legendary, even to this day, staple in American media entertainment is because it's offering you something that you just don't get to do on an everyday basis, and it lets you wish and dream. 
I think one of the other things about National Geographic that to me is so unique about the franchise itself is that how its value and its importance has held up over multiple generations. Those of you who are classic movie fans, how many of you recall uh, in the early part of the classic film It's a Wonderful Life that featured Jimmy Stewart in that starring role, that when it depicts him as a young boy who has aspirations of exploring the world far and wide, he proclaims to his schoolmates he has been nominated to become a member of the National Geographic Society. So there was a prestige associated with that. And then, of course, it translated later into film and, most importantly, into TV. So it it was able to cover all of the different mediums, and it always made learning fun. So there was fun with a purpose. What was the purpose? Education. And it unified families, that is, parents and their children, And also, it was something that was a great tie-in with school, because we had the school bulletins uh, at my school as well as at home, and this was really a great way to explore both contemporary topics as well as topics that went back. And then you could share about it the next day after watching it on TV. And you got it there with George Bailey as a young man. We've all had that dream. George Bailey, don't you know I'm a certified or I'm I'm a charter member of the National Geographic Explorers Foundation? Well, everybody was. All you had to do was send your money for the magazine subscription. But to a little kid who could dream, and even as that movie unfolded, where George Bailey gets the piece of luggage, the suitcase, and he's got the brochures for the, again, it's the faraway places, the places we only dream about. In the 50s, 60s, I got as far as... Atlanta, Georgia, and I would see a National Geographic special, and all of a sudden I would be taken to Red China, perhaps. I would I would be taken to the surface of the moon. I could go anywhere, and, and as a young boy or girl, growing up as a baby boomer, we didn't have the technology, we didn't have the games. We didn't have the intelligence at that time. We hadn't developed the intelligence because technology was still 35 years behind. We just drew our dreams and our hopes by images and spoken words, pictures, pictures of the Great Wall of China. I used to dream about what would that be like, the guys who built that, and they'd stand up there and fight people off. Well, how'd they fight them off before they got the wall done? And you would question, and I don't think there's enough questions that today's children are asking because there are no prompts to the questions. You basically build your own scenario of what's going on. But 50s, 60s, 70s, you basically got what was on TV. And I will tell you, my everybody has their favorite. And if we went back and everybody was reminded of their national... I, my favorites were any of them produced by David L. Wolper, which we should do a show on, Smitty. We, we should, we, Mike. We keep we'll threatening have to, yeah. to. But yeah, we'll David L. Wolper had a talent. He was the 60s, 70s version of Ken Burns. When Wolper put something out, it could be two hours on World War One, or it could be David L. Wolper goes to Jerusalem, which I think was probably one of the National Geographic specials I'm referring to. But the Wolpers were great. They had a lot of good producers. Uh, Dennis Kane made the first batch. But uh, the magic of the creative minds getting together with natural history and human history and civilizations and bringing together this collage that was actually news. It was places I never heard of Bali. Oh, it's the same as Indonesia. Who knew? But it was fun going to school. You could get a geography lesson and be entertained, laugh, cry, feel sorry, 
but have something to tell your friends about on Monday when you went back to school. Hey, did you see that thing on the uh, on the south of France or whatever? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Or the RAF airfields that are grown over from the war. Those yeah. were incredible because I'm a history buff. Yeah. Sort of to digress a little bit, we were talking during our pre-production meeting about the National Geographic magazine and how that ties in. George, you know, we were just uh, talking about the fact that there really was a tie-in between the television programs and the, and the magazines themselves. And those magazines are like a time capsule. Yes, how many are. of you have been either to an estate sale or perhaps to uh, an old uh, bookstore where they have uh, magazines going back decades. And when you look at the collection of magazines that go from decade to decade, or maybe you, as I did as a child, visiting different people's homes, and it was always amazing. There was a section of their study or the family room that had a stack of National Geographics, and it was like taking a trip back through time. And that was amazing to me. Plus... What's am- what is interesting is how geographic as a franchise evolved from that into the 21st century. I believe it has its own cable channel now. Yes, it does. Cable yeah. channel, children's, National Geographic has a kid's channel on PBS. Yeah, they do. Very yeah. popular syndicated series. So they're still very much in the forefront. And you can find these National Geographic specials just about anywhere on YouTube if you know where to search. National Geographic even has their own app smartphone app, which also works for your iPad, where you can watch these. It's like going to the Library of Congress. I wanted to ask either of you, since you're both very knowledgeable about the field of collectibles, is there any material value other than sentiment associated either with old copies of the geographic going back, say, to the 30s, the 40s, the 50s, and perhaps the 60s? And what about the multiple series of books that were spun off from these various TV specials? Well, part of the issue on the collectability, on the value, is the fact that so many thousands of those copies, all the way back to the first years of production of National Geographic magazines, so many were produced. They were produced in different languages. They were produced with specials. So to answer your question, George, you'll see National Geographics at any thrift store. I guarantee definitely any thrift store in San Diego. You'll see them for a quarter apiece, 50 cents apiece, I've had people call me because we mentioned our collectible, uh, our offerings of checking things out. People will call and say, I've got my grandfather's collection of National Geographics. I have every volume from 1937 and until 1954, and I'm only asking $500 for the whole shebang. Well, number one, I can, you can get every issue of National Geographic right back to Volume 1, Issue 1 on which is not the same as holding the magazine in your hand. Of course, we've talked about that before, but you can research it and go all the way back because every issue has been scanned. Where are you going to store in today's American household? Where are you going to store every issue of National Geographic from 1937 to 1956 or whatever, for that matter, a year? The reason they were kept is because they weren't really magazines. You don't see people who collected 12 years of TV guide. If you know of somebody, let me and Smitty know because we'll make an offer right now unseen on the whole shebang. <laughs> but they weren't collected. They were thrown away because they were timely. National Geographic, uh, Mount Vesuvius is not a timely subject unless it blows up next week. It'll be very timely and it'll hit the media cycle, but they didn't get rid of them. And number one, it was horrible if somebody took a volume because the idea and what you've seen you had every volume from the time they first got their subscription approved 
believe me, every issue all the way till that person passed away, moved away, or got lost interest is there by volume. It's just like a, a magazine version of an encyclopedia. And that's why they stayed. They couldn't be thrown away. When did it become available on newsstands? Because as I recall, it used to be only a through subscription, or was it always available on newsstands? You could get them at newsstands, but not particularly newsstands. Back in that day, in the 50s and 60s, they were called bookstores. Ah, uh, okay. okay. That would explain and that. In San Diego, we had Pickwick. Well, the, in Southern California, we had Pickwick. In Hollywood. We had Romans. Mm-hmm. And you could get National Geographic. You could not typically get it at a bungalow news or a magazine shack. Over mm-hmm. in Hollywood on Coanga, at the newsstands there on the corner, you could pick up National Geographic. But the interesting part about it, you didn't have to be a geek. I, National Geographic was subscribed to by movie stars. I've got two National Geographics that James Cagney had. I have his address up in Hollywood. I bought these at the Rose Bowl swap meet about 30 years ago. With his, he, he subscribed also to Look Magazine and Life and National Geographic, and I got two of each. They were pretty pricey. They're probably really pricey now, but they were James Cagney's magazines. He touched them. He read them. And you know, line the birdcage with some of them, whatever. So they're part of an American original. And it's interesting. National Geographic, you'll search them on eBay, but uh, don't pay more than a quarter, please. But we're going to wrap up. Uh, National Geographic, uh, we could go for six hours on that subject, yes. just all the cool things. But uh, we're going to tell you that we are running out of time. This has been one of our special one hour, our special 60 minute show. Thanks to our good friend George Halalakos being here with us. And when I say us, I'm referring to me, Mike, and Smitty, and George. All three of us have been so delighted to bring this information to you today here on Galaxy Moonbeam Nightside. Let me remind you before we drift off into Adventureland that we are available on Facebook. You can download all our shows for about, well, the last two months of shows. We embed them now on our Facebook page. Just get on Facebook, search Galaxy Moonbeam Night Sight. And remember, that's S-I-T-E. You can email us at galaxymoonbeamnightsight at gmail.com. And believe it or not, our website is galaxymoonbeamnightsight.com. Until then, we're going to repeat our names once again because the sound of it is so sweet to me. I'm Mike. I'm Smitty. And I'm George. Bye-bye for now. We'll be talking to you again very soon right here on Galaxy Moonbeam Nightsight. This is the Galaxy Nostalgia Network.